Church, it's good to be with you. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at The Stone. Last week, we finished our series on the hard sayings of Jesus. So if you missed any of that, um, I'd highly recommend going back and listening to those messages online. But before we started that series, I don't know if you remember, we were working our way through the book of Exodus. And so starting today and through the rest of the month of June, we're going to be back in the book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 14 today. But as a way of quick review, what is the book of Exodus all about? I think the simplest way that we can say it is that the book of Exodus is about salvation. I think the reason why the book of Exodus exists is, it's, is to teach us about our salvation. And so if you've ever wondered, what does it mean to be saved? What was I saved from? Why did I need to be saved? Well, who saved me? If you ever had these questions, the book of Exodus is for you. The book of Exodus is a story about God's people living in the devastation and bondage and slavery in Egypt for 430 years. A story about how God comes to rescue them and deliver them out of that bondage of slavery. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us that the story that happened 4,000 years ago was written down for us. It was written down for you and me as an example for us, as a parallel to our story of how God rescued us from our slavery in sin and death, just as God saved the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt. And so the entire book of Exodus teaches us about our salvation. But Exodus chapter 14, which describes the crossing of the Red Sea moment, such a famous story, right? God splitting open the Red Sea so that the Israelites could walk through. Even though the book of Exodus, the entirety of it, exists to teach us about our salvation, I think Exodus chapter 14, it stands over and above the rest of the book and showing us most clearly and most compellingly how God saves his people. It's an event that's so significant and it's so powerful that throughout the rest of the Old Testament, ever since this moment, for the next thousand years, when the people of God need to be reminded of who God is, when they need to be reminded of what he's done, what he's able to do, God points them over and over and over again to this one single event. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see this over and over again. God saying, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. God saying over and over again, I'm the God who brought you out of the house of slavery. I'm the God who divided the sea and caused you to cross over on dry ground. This event is referenced over and over again in the Old Testament as the pivotal event in which God saved his people. And you know, all throughout the New Testament, there's another event that God points us to over and over again, right? And what is that event? It's the cross. It's the cross of Jesus, right? Whereas the cross of Jesus is the singular event that communicates best in all of the Bible the nature of our salvation. What were we saved from? Who saved us? Why do we need to be saved? How were we saved, right? The crossing of the Red Sea is the singular event of the Old Testament that parallels and ultimately points us to the cross. And so, how does Exodus chapter 14 the crossing of the Red Sea narrative, teach us about our salvation in at least four ways, at least four ways. Sorry, guys, I tried real hard to make it three, but I couldn't. Four ways. 
by showing us, number one, the nature of what we're saved from. Nature of what we're saved from. In other words, the nature of sin, slavery, and death. And number two, by showing us the nature of true biblical freedom and salvation. And number three, by showing us the nature of the one being saved. Who is that? That's us. It shows us our nature and why we needed to be saved. Number four, by showing us the nature of the one who saves. Who is that? That's God. Shows us God's nature and showing how and why he saves his people. So let's look at the first one. The nature of slavery. The nature of what we're saved from. Exodus chapter 14, verses 5 through 9. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers all over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi, Hahiroth, in front of Baal Zephon. All right, so if you guys remember the story, what's been happening? After 10 devastating plagues, right? After 10 devastating plagues that God had brought upon Egypt, Pharaoh had finally surrendered and letting God's people go. The Israelites are now, they just now started their journey to Canaan, the promised land that God is leading them to. And on their journey, they run into their first physical barrier. And that's the Red Sea. Now God uses this occasion to harden Pharaoh's heart one more time. After Pharaoh hears that the Israelites are essentially trapped, they're at the Red Sea, they can't cross it, they can't go anywhere. Verse 5 tells us that Pharaoh had a change of mind and that he came to a realization and said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Basically saying, what in the world did we just do in letting go a two million person free labor force? What's gonna happen to our economy? What's gonna happen to our way of life, right? And so Pharaoh gathers his entire army, 600 chosen chariots with officers all over them and fiercely chases and overtakes the Israelites. Now 600 chariots, you might be thinking, whoopity-doo, 600 chariots, big deal. What's the big deal? What we have to realize is that there was nothing quite like the chariot at this time in history. It was essentially the world's super weapon. When an army fought another army, who won? Well, death best basically came down to who had more chariots and who had the better chariots. So the world's superpower of the day, that's the Egyptians, right? The world's superpower of the day was coming after people who knew nothing but slavery all their lives with the world's super weapon of the day. That's what's happening here. And in the verses that will follow, which we will read in a little, little bit, it tells us that the Israelites, when they saw Pharaoh and his army coming after them, they knew exactly why they were coming after them, to put them in their graves. That their former slave masters have fiercely come after them to say, if you don't serve us, you're going to die. If you don't serve us, we're going to slaughter you. And so, this is the picture of sin in our lives. Okay? We talked about the parallel, right? This is the picture of sin in our lives. Pharaoh and his army fiercely chasing after the Israelites. 
sin in our lives, it's an enslaving master that is fiercely coming after us and saying, serve me or die. Serve me or die. You can't deal with this kind of slave master. You can't deal with this kind of sin in our lives by making peace treaties. You can't deal with this level of sin in our lives by fighting it through morality. You can't deal with it through behavioral modification. But isn't this the way that many of us, we try to deal with sin in our lives? You know, you have the sin that's in your life, you're so ashamed of it, it's been plaguing you, right? You're so ashamed to confess it to anybody, you just don't know how to deal with it, so what do you do? Well, you just try to clean yourself up. You just try to not do it anymore. You try to abstain from it. So maybe you abstain from it for a week. Maybe you abstain from it for two weeks. And you try to put greater and greater distance between you and that sin. And you feel a little bit better about yourself. But are you really free? Have you truly been liberated from the sin in your life? And you might ask, are you saying that we don't have the power to be good, moral people? Are you saying that apart from Jesus and his power, we can't, we can't deal with sin in our lives and become good, moral people? What I'm saying is you might be moral, but you won't ever be good. You might be moral, but you won't be good because the greater evil is not bad people walking around doing bad things. The greater evil is bad people walking around doing good things, thinking they can be good apart from God. These are the types of people that Jesus came down hardest on. Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus is saying that dealing with your sin problem through morality, through behavioral modification, is like cleaning the outside of a tomb. Cleaning it really, really well even, making it sparkle so that when people look at your life, they say, man, that person's life is beautiful. I wish my life looked like that. But, he says, you haven't dealt with the inside. You haven't dealt with the heart that is full of dead men's bones. Only Jesus can truly deal with your sin problem by giving you a new heart, by replacing the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, the Bible says. The Israelites thought that Pharaoh had surrendered, but now they find themselves and his army more fierce than ever and chasing after them. In essence, what the Bible is saying is our sin, it, it won't just stay in Egypt. It won't say, okay, we'll stay in Egypt. You can go into the promised land. We'll leave you alone. We'll never chase after you. It won't do that. The only way that it can be dealt with is by putting it to death. And that's what Jesus did at the cross. When it comes to true biblical freedom, when it comes to true biblical salvation, God isn't looking for morality, bad people trying to be good. Salvation is not found in putting our sins in check Salvation is found in putting our sins to death. Salvation is not found in putting our sins in check. Salvation is found in putting our sins to death, and only Jesus can do that. That's what Jesus did at the cross. He put our sins to death. As long as our sins, past, present, and future, aren't dealt with and put to death at the cross, it will fiercely come after you saying, serve me or die. So now, let's look at the nature of true biblical freedom and salvation that, is God, that God is offering us. Let's look at verse 8 again. 
And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The people of Israel were going out defiantly. Well, going out from where? Going out of Egypt, right? Why were they able to go out of Egypt? Because Pharaoh had surrendered, right? After the 10 plagues, Pharaoh had surrendered to let God's people go, right? But here we have Pharaoh and all his army fiercely chasing after them, more committed than ever. So are the Israelites free or not? They're freed from Egypt. They're no longer slaves, but are they free yet? Are they saved yet? Now listen, this is one of the most critical points to understand. Though the Israelites were free from Egypt, though they had come out of Egypt, though Pharaoh had even surrendered and let them go, though they were in a sense no longer slaves, the Israelites still were not free. They were still not yet saved. And this was the message that we talked about in earlier chapters of Exodus, that the famous line that we all remember and love from the famous Charlton Heston movie, right, is Moses stepping up to Pharaoh and saying what? Saying, let my people go, right? That's the famous line we all know and love. But Moses didn't really say that. That's not what God told Moses to say. God told Moses to say, let my people go so that they may worship me. Let my people go so that they may serve me. What this is showing us is that true freedom and salvation is not found in having no master at all. True salvation and freedom is found in having the right master. True freedom and salvation is not found in having no master, but having the right master. The concept of freedom and liberty is something that we as Americans love. But the modern view of freedom is this, to have no lord or master. Isn't that it? The modern view of freedom? To have no lord or master, to have no restrictions on your individual choice, to belong to no one, to be owned by no one. That true freedom is the freedom to belong only to yourself and to be able to do whatever it is that pleases you. That's the modern view of freedom. But the problem is it's not biblical at all. It's not biblical at all. It's not the way that the Bible would define freedom. God did not say, let my people go. He did not say, just let them go so that they can do whatever they want. He did not say, let my people go so that they could live the way that they want, so that they could pursue their dreams and aspirations. God did not say, let my people go so that they could do whatever it is that it is that they think will make them happy. That's not what he said. God said, let my people go so that they may worship me. He said, let my people go so that they will do my will and not their will. Let my people go so that they will experience the joy of serving me and no longer the misery of serving all these taskmasters. Let my people go so that they will pursue my plans for them, which makes their own dreams and aspirations look puny. Let my people go so that they may worship me. See, many of you, you're living exactly what you have chosen for yourself. You're doing exactly what you thought would make you happy. As far as the American dream is concerned, you're crushing it. Let me ask you a question. So are you happy? Are you happy? Do you feel free? While others of you, life's been hard. And your life looks nothing like the way you have chosen for yourself but that is the price you've been paying for following Jesus. Things have been hard, but nevertheless, you feel free. 
Nevertheless, you feel God's salvation. Not, not only are you saved, you feel saved. Not only are you free, you feel freed. What God is showing us is that the only way to truly be free, the only way to truly be liberated, the only way to truly escape slavery is not when you're serving no master, but when you're free to serve the right master. Not when you're free to do whatever you want, but when you're free to worship and obey him. It's only then that the deepest longings of your souls would be satisfied and content and at peace. Why? Because you're doing exactly what God has created and designed for you to do, right? He's your creator. He designed you and purposed you for, to live in a certain way. And when you're finally living that way, that's when you'll feel the freedom. That's when you'll feel the salvation. What is true biblical freedom and salvation? What do we need to be saved from? We need to be freed from not serving God. We need to be saved from not worshiping God. To exclusively and absolutely serve God and worship him is where true biblical freedom and salvation is found. So the nature of sin and death is such that unless it's dealt with, unless it's put to death, it will fiercely come after you saying, serve me or die. The nature of true biblical freedom and salvation is not found in having, having no master at all, but having the right master. Thirdly, what is the nature of one being saved? What was the Israelites' nature? What's our nature? What is it about us that needs saving? Why did God save us? Is there anything about us, is there anything about what we did that deserved merit our salvation? Let's look at verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What are these verses teaching us about the Israelites? What are these verses revealing about our own nature? Now remember, these are the people who have just experienced God deliver them out of Egypt by ten major plagues. They have just experienced, they have just seen God give irrefutable empirical evidence of his power over the Egyptians and his love and commitment for the Israelites. Okay? So after going through the ten plagues, the Israelites cannot say, you know, I think Pharaoh is actually more powerful than God. They can't come to that conclusion. After the ten plagues, the Israelites cannot say, you know, I just don't think God cares about us that much. You can't come to that conclusion. And not only that, but they see that Pharaoh had changed his mind. But guess what? That's nothing new. With each plague, as soon as God would provide a reprieve, Pharaoh would change his mind and refuse to let God's people go. Pharaoh and his army chasing them should be nothing new. They should be expecting it by now. And so, the most reasonable thing to do, I'm not even talking about the most faithful thing to do, I'm talking about the most reasonable and logical thing to do as they see Pharaoh and his army chasing after them is to say, there goes Pharaoh again. Changed his mind again, coming after us. I guess God's going to bring an 11th plague, right? That is the most logical, reasonable thing to do. Not even the most faithful thing to do. But instead, 
a people who are described in verse 8 as a people defiantly marching out of Egypt are now a people who are acting absolutely faithless, paralyzed with fear. They've lost all hope and trust in God. In doing so, they're operating in absolute delusion. They say, were there no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? After all that the Lord has done, what an indictment to make, right? But we do this all the time. We do this all the time. We experience some hardship. We experience some barrier. And what's the first thing we say? God, do you even care? God, do you even love me? God, are you even in control? You know, if you were to reasonably and logically look at your life, you would never come to this conclusion. If you were to reasonably and logically look at your life and see all the marks of how God's been faithful to you, all the marks of him showing you how he's been in control, you would never come to this conclusion, but that's our nature. We run into that first barrier and first thing we do, God, are you even in control? God, do you even love me? We do the same thing. They said, did we not say to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? No, they never said that. They never said that. They cried out in anguish because they were so miserable in slavery and they rejoiced at the news that God was going to save them. But in their unbelief, in their absolute faithlessness, the first time they experience hardship, the first time they encounter a barrier, they lose all hope, right? In a lot of ways, this was their first barrier. The 10 plagues, as horrific as it was towards the Egyptians, God shielded them a lot, right? And so at the first slightest hint of a barrier, lose all hope. And these are the types of people that Jesus described in Matthew 13. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Listen to verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receive it, receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And so, left to themselves, the Israelites would have fallen away. Left to ourselves, our nature is such that even when we begin to respond to Jesus and believe in the gospel, at the first hint of trial or persecution, we will fall away. What ought to be the most alarming to us as we see ourselves in the Israelites is their fast and quick willingness to return right back into slavery. They tell Moses, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And for many of us, in the quietness of our own hearts, we've all said the same thing. You know, this Christianity thing, I don't know if it's worth it. It's following Jesus thing, it's hard. My life sure was easier before this Jesus came into my life. In other words, what these verses are showing us about the Israelites, what these verses are showing us about us and our nature is that there is absolutely nothing about us that has merited or is deserving of salvation. In fact, what's being shown here is the Israelites here are just as deserving, if not more deserving of God's wrath than the Egyptians. After 10 times God has wondrously worked to free them from slavery, there's still no trust, there's still no faith, only an accusation. Were there no graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die? What do you remember about your salvation? What do you remember about the time when you were saved and when God saved you? 
Why do you think God saved you? How do you know you're a Christian? How would you answer that question? How do you know you're a Christian? If you answer and say, you know, I think God saved me because I'm a pretty good person. If you say, I think I'm a Christian because I try not to sin, I always try to do the right thing. If your answer is, I think God saved me because as long as I can remember, I've been going to church and I've been serving at church and I've been giving offerings. If your answer is, I think I'm a Christian because I'm a good person and I do good things, then I would as lovingly as I can tell you, you're not saved. You're not saved. You haven't experienced God saving you yet. You haven't yet experienced true biblical freedom. If you think the reason why God saved you is because there was something good about you. Exodus chapter 14 exists to say, the entirety of the Bible is given to us to say, there was none who seeks God, not even one. That is our nature. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? What this means is that one of the primary marks of someone who is a believer, one of the primary marks of a Christian is a person who looks at their life, who looks at their nature and says, I have no idea how I was saved. I look at my life. I look at all the ways that I don't believe, all the ways that I sin. I can't believe God saved me. It's a person who looks at their life and loses all their breath right? It's a person who says, unless God intervened, apart from God's intervention, I would not be saved. It's a person who looks at their nature and says, I can't believe God saved me. But then it's a person who looks at God's nature and his grace and says, it makes all the sense in the world why a God like that would save me. Grace alone. Grace alone. How do you know you're saved? Because of God's grace. If your answer is anything beyond that, that is a great marker that you don't believe. Fourth point, what is the nature of the one who saves? What is it about God's nature that would save an undeserving people like us? Let's look at Exodus chapter 14, verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. In response to the Israelites crying out in their unbelief and accusation that God brought them out only to kill them, God speaks through Moses three things. Number one, fear not. Number two, stand firm and be silent. Number three, see the salvation of the Lord. Number one, fear not. This doesn't mean they're there, everything's going to be okay. This fear not is what grammarians call a negative imperative. It is the strongest possible form of expressing negation in the Hebrew language. And so it's not meant to comfort the Israelites, it's meant to rebuke them. What this is showing us about God's nature is that even though he's slow to anger, he's slow to anger, right? Even though he's patient, he's patient, right? Even though he's faithful towards us, even though while we were faithless, he is nevertheless a God who is holy, who sees sin, who rebukes sin. 
Number two, stand firm and be silent. What this is showing us about God is that when it comes to our salvation, he is the sole actor. He is the sole actor. There's no co-redeemer. We don't cooperate with God in saving ourselves. God needs no help from us when it comes to our salvation. God alone does everything that's required for our salvation. This shows us something else about the nature of God that stands in direct contrast to all other masters that seek to enslave us. Every slave master found in this world, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's pride, power, or the approval of man, whatever it is, every slave master in this world demands servitude from you before it gives you any benefits, right? Every slave master found in this world says, serve me, serve me, and then I will give you some benefits. But God, in a sense, has the Israelites right where he wants them, doesn't he? They're stuck in between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, right? You say, Israelites, see, Red Sea, Pharaoh's army, you're going to die. Okay, I'll save you, but, I'll save you, but you got to do this, 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 this. If God wanted to get something out of the Israelites, this is the perfect time to demand it, right? But he doesn't. He demands nothing. He says, do nothing. He says, just stand there and be silent. God will save the Israelites first and then take them to Mount Sinai to give them the Ten Commandments. God saves us first. He requires no work from us. Salvation is not by works. He knows that we don't have the ability to obey unless he saves us first. He saves us, and then he instructs us on how to live and what to obey. Now, make no mistake, God demands your obedience. He demands your obedience, but he saves you first. He saves you first. It's not obey, and then God will save you. It's not obey so that God will save you. It's we obey because God has saved us. Number three, see the salvation of the Lord. Verse 13 says, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. What this is showing us is that salvation isn't just something we are to be recipients of, but it's something to be seen. So many of us are here and you're genuinely saved. God saved you. You're recipients and beneficiaries of this great salvation. Well, let me ask you a question. When is the last time you looked at your salvation? When is the last time you beheld what it cost God to give you this salvation? When's the last time you looked at your salvation, it just took all your breath away? You just had no words. When's the last time you did that? Let me read to you what the Israelites saw. Now, it's such a famous story, right? And the tendency is to kind of tune it out because we know what happened. But I want you to imagine being there. I want you to imagine being one of the Israelites and seeing this. Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Imagine seeing that. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians. 
upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Can you imagine being there and seeing all that? Can you imagine being there walking across on, on dry ground with a wall of water to your right and to your left? Can you imagine having crossed the Red Sea, looking back and seeing upon the seashore the source of all your fears drowned? Seeing the source of why you were a slave, why you know nothing but slavery all your life, done, dealt with could just imagine the look of wonder on their faces as they stared at each other saying, slaves no more. We are slaves no more. You know, as I looked at this text afresh, such a famous story, but as I looked at it afresh, I wonder if you could relate with me. I thought to myself, man, what I would give to have been there. What I would give to have been there to walk across the Red Sea on dry ground with the wall of water to my right and to my left, just thinking to myself, man, my God is doing this to save me after what I just did. After the accusation, after the faithlessness, after the doubting, he's doing this to save me. And I thought to myself, man, if I was there, if I got to cross the Red Sea that day, I just would never waver. I thought to myself, I just would never sin. Like literally I would be done with sin. But then I remembered, and if you're familiar with the rest of the book of Exodus, you know that the Israelites are going to continue to sin. You know that they're going to continue to be faithless. You know that they're going to continue to complain. You know that they're going to build a golden calf for themselves and bow down and worship it. And what all of this is showing us is that if God is going to really save a people like us, if he's really going to save a people like you and me, he has to do something greater. He has to do something infinitely greater. As great as the ten plagues were, as great as the splitting of, open of the Red Sea was, he has to do something infinitely greater to save us. And the good news is the Bible tells us that's exactly what he did at the cross. That's what he did. And so if you're here today and you love Jesus and you know that God saved you, he has done something for you that is infinitely greater. You didn't just cross over the Red Sea. Because of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, you didn't just cross over some body of water. The Bible says you've crossed over from death into life. From death into life. That's what you are the recipients of. That's what God has done for you. And so, church, how would you have lived if you were there that day? How would you have lived if you were that day and got to experience crossing over the Red Sea? 
how should we now live now that we got to experience crossing over from death into life? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this great salvation that we stand in. As great as the work of the ten plagues, as great as the work of the Red Sea, Lord, it's not as though you used to do great things back then, but you no longer now. Father, we sit here recipients of the greatest work that you have ever done. We didn't get to cross over the Red Sea, but because of Jesus, we got to cross over from death into life. Father, thank you for the work of the cross that truly dealt with our sin problem. That at the cross, you put it to death. So, Father, now, because you have saved us, because you have given us freedom, let us now experience that great salvation. Let us now feel the freedom in Christ Jesus as we no longer run back to the slave masters that hold no power over us. Let us not be a people who are trying to walk around with no master. There is no freedom in that. Let us now run to you, our true and right master and find our salvation and freedom in worshiping you and obeying you alone. In Jesus' name we pray.